there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. Do you want to break into branding and marketing? If so, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest heads one of the most influential branding agencies in the world, a company that has developed billion-dollar brand names like Sonos, Pentium, Swiffer, OnStar, Febreze, and BlackBerry. But before I introduce you to David Plasek, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that we blast out on Mondays, giving you an exclusive peek at the professionals we're going to be featuring that week, and it is so easy to sign up. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number 4coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my morphological macchiato lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my super creative next guest is David Plasek, the founder and president of Lexicon Branding. Over the last almost 40 years, under David's leadership, Lexicon has focused on the development of brand names that support business and marketing objectives. To achieve those goals, David has led his firm's unconventional approach to creativity using small teams, linguists, and yes, computer modeling to create new ideas. David, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? I'm ready to go. Happy to be here. Thank you. Oh, well, it is just such a thrill for me to get to talk with you. I want to let our listeners know before we get into what you do and how you do it so well at Lexicon, that if they are interested in learning how to break into the field of branding, they should check out the show notes for this episode to see if your Espresso Shots episode has already been released because that is where David got into really the nitty gritty of what he's looking for in the young people that they hire at Lexicon. What are the skills? What are the life experiences? Whether your major matters? All of those important details are in the Espresso Shots episode. So check out show notes and you can see if it's already out there. Now, David, I think you know this, but I want our listeners to know why I have been just so incredibly excited to interview you. It's because I first heard you on a wonderful podcast called Startup, in which the host, Alex Bloomberg, and his partner visited Lexicon to get your help in choosing a name for their new podcasting company. And this was while their startup, that's why it's called Startup, was being built. And it is a really interesting episode, and I recommend it to anyone who's interested in it. And you actually chose the name of their new company, which is Gimlet. That's correct. Well, at the end of today's episode, I was hoping to ask you for your brutally honest and candid assessment of the name of my company, Time for Coffee, which I clearly did not have your professional assistance in choosing. Is that okay with you? 
be perfectly okay. Yep. I look forward to it. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So I also want you to know that I've got a little bit of a pit in my stomach right now, David, because in preparing for our caffeinated chat today, I researched you and read something that you said about how one of the biggest mistakes companies make is being too descriptive with their names. Why is being too descriptive a mistake? Well, it's a mistake on several levels. To answer that question, I'm going to step back and talk a little bit about how our minds work, right? Our minds want to, we want to imagine things. And when you describe something so clearly as to what it does, the mind sort of moves on from it. There's no way to predict that, whoa, that might have this or it might be better for me. It simply becomes what it is. So if you take an example that we were involved and we had a client who came to us and they were the internet diamond store. Okay. So that's descriptive. It tells you exactly what is there, but there's no imagination to it. There's no romance to it. They struggled. This was a startup now probably 15 years old, but in the first couple of years, they just weren't getting the momentum that they wanted. We changed that name to Blue Nile. So really an arbitrary solution. But what does it do? It allows people to imagine experience at Blue Nile. Underneath Blue Nile, you can talk about jewelry and diamonds and people get it. And Blue Nile is now the largest jewelry store on the internet. Oh my gosh. Yeah, there you go. Well, they got their money's worth. They did. They did. (laughs) And a great client, very talented crew of people. All this, of course, as you know, is a collaborative task. It's us combined with the client who make these decisions. Of course. Now, David, you've also said that the purpose of a name is not to capture the product's positioning or to tell a story in one word. So what is the purpose of a name? Well, in these days in particular, with all the competition in any category, with what I like to describe as a dramatically distracted consumer, largely because of the internet and social media, and declining consumer loyalty. And I don't mean loyalty to your partner or your husband or your best friends. I'm really talking about product loyalty. Those three things suggest to us that rather than try to differentiate, rather than tell people what something is, that this is faster than this product or it's drier than this product or has more flavor, is to be truly distinctive, to get their attention and allow the consumer to imagine something. So it sort of breaks through the marketplace and says, hey, there, there might be a better idea here. I'm going to try this. And then hopefully you do have a better idea. And if you don't, that's where it falls apart. But we err on the side of being distinctive over differentiating. Huh. I do not understand that distinctive there. What is the difference between distinctive versus yeah. differentiating? Let's go back to the Pentium story where the internal, uh, this is, I think, a great example. The internal team of engineers wanted the name of that fifth generation processor chipset to be called ProChip. Their logic was, hey, it's got more power. It's more professional. It is a chip. Let's call it what it is, ProChip. We, of course, were hired, worked with their team, did number of rounds of creative, and along the way, we uncovered this Pentium. And many of the senior executives at Intel were still on that side of, why don't we just call it what it is? 
But consumers told us when we asked them about what kind of a computer would have a Pentium in it versus a Pro chip, almost overwhelmingly, consumers talked about how whatever that Pentium is, I'm going to be better off. It's going to be faster. Yes, it's going to be more expensive, but it's got premium performance in it. Pro chip was simply, eh, that's, I guess, the next generation of chips from Intel. There was a him and a haw on that. So Pentium, the example, it's distinctive, it's new, doesn't tell you exactly what it is, right? But it allows the mind to imagine. BlackBerry would be another example of this, where truly distinctive name. It took great courage on the part of Research in Motion to pick that BlackBerry as a name. But our argument then, as is now, is when you're a startup and you're small and you want to break through, you need to get attention by being very descriptive. I like to use the phrase remarkably distinctive. Hopefully that helps. Yeah, it does. And I know at least this is what my research showed, that the research that Lexicon did in, I guess, preparing for the selection of the word BlackBerry suggested that the repetition of the letter B would promote relaxation in users. Is that right? It's almost right. Those two Bs, they adhere to a principle called alliteration in words, right? So it makes it easier to pronounce, right? A little more memorable. Memorability is a very important aspect here. But B is about reliability, which can help you sort of be confident and relax that this is going to work, right? I'm confident that this small phone called a BlackBerry with the sound, it's the sound of the B that helps to build that type of reliability. So even though you could argue, wow, this is a very creative name, the color black actually communicates sort of an industrial nature, a high-tech nature to it, right? And the two Bs support that reliability. So we have this nice combination of something that's fresh and playful and relaxing, blackberry pie, summer with blackberries, et cetera. But yet the structure of it, the letters, the connotations actually delivered confidence and reliability. So we had a one-two punch, if you would, in that name. Nice. And I know that that was why your recommendation to Research in Motion was that they capitalize the second B, the berry. That's correct. To make it stand out a little bit further. Cool. David, can you take us into the naming process? And by that, I mean, how do you actually structure the process with your clients and how much of that process is based on algorithms and technology? Because I know there's an engineering layer to what you do. And how much is based on kind of old-fashioned analog creativity, the art versus the science? Well, let me talk first about simply the creative side. Traditional brainstorming, through a lot of research on my own part, I just realized that traditional brainstorming is not nearly as effective as working with smaller teams. So at Lexicon, from a creative standpoint, We've done two things that are unique. One, we only work with small two-person teams. I mean, there are exceptions to this based on timing and things like that, but it's two-person teams. And each team is given a different briefing. And those teams are then supported by both linguistic knowledge in databases, et cetera, but also real live linguists 
who work here in our offices, but also we have just a tremendous network of linguists around the world that participate in our creative programs and in our assessment or evaluation programs. So that's the creative part. That starts, though, before we ever put pen to paper, we work with our client team to begin to identify what role should this name play, what role should the surrounding nomenclature, the descriptors, the brand architecture play that is different than maybe there's the parent brand, maybe there's the identity, maybe it's what this does. If something is smaller than if we're naming a new camera and it happens to be really, really small, we don't need to have a name that talks about small because people are going to see that it's a small camera. So, so why waste the time doing something like that? Mm-hmm. So that's where it starts. From that engineering level that you talked about, a lot of that is actually black boxed or proprietary. We've now invested just at now at this point, 2019, north of $4 million in developing software that can model certain features of a name. Is it easy to pronounce? Would it work as well in Japan as it would in France? Does it have the type of sentiment that we need? And very importantly, how easy is it to process? Linguists talk about this area of the brain, really cognitive science called processing fluency. And we've developed algorithms that help us analyze just how easy is it going to be for consumers in target markets to sort of grasp onto this, right? We all like simple ideas. We don't like complex ideas, right? We'll read an article about mad cow disease, or at least it'll get maybe the first paragraph. But if it starts off with the true scientific and far more complex phrase of bovine spongiform uh, <laughs> encephalopoly. You lost we, me. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so that's the principle we operate. And that's that engineering level that we have been quite persistent in developing. Really, we started 20 years ago when we finally had made enough money to start and had a sort of a balanced portfolio to start really investing significantly in the company. Oh my gosh. So how do you know that you have landed on the right brand name? One that, to quote you from just a moment ago, is strikingly noticeable. And would you be so kind, David, as to use Swiffer as an example? You know, the answer to that at this point is clients often talk about lexicon is, well, they're the experts, right? And I always respond to that with saying, you know, in the creative services business, there's really no experts. There's people with more experience. And then there's people with a lot of experience. I don't think anyone would describe Monet or a Chagall or a Pizarro as an expert artist. I think they'd use wonderful, brilliant, experienced, persistently gained in skills. And so when I look at a name like Swiffer, and I'll talk a little bit about that process, because of the 3,500 projects that I've been involved in now, you develop an intuition about the strength of that name versus what's out there already and a confidence in being able to tell clients that this is going to work. Swiffer was relatively easy for me to say that. So now let me tell you the story of that. P&G came to us with the idea of an improved MOP. And in fact, similar to, to Intel's ProChip, they were disappointed that they were not able to register both ProMOP and I think EasyMOP was another solution that they had. Well, 
We said, sure, we'll help. And we said, send out a sample of sketches. And, and they did. And we immediately set up a meeting and said, well, first off, this isn't really a mop. When you say a mop to most consumers, it's got to have strings on it. It's got to be really inefficient. And so let's forget the idea of a mop here. Let's invent something new. Then we went out and we talked to consumers, just 20. You don't need to do some $100,000 project. And we talked to them about cleaning, but then we moved it into mopping. And it was clear that mopping was the least desirable household task. Some people love to polish their furniture. Other people love to wash windows, right? But nobody that we interviewed liked mopping. And they told us why. It's inefficient. You're moving stuff around. The water's dirty. Now you got to wring out the cotton strands. Okay, so we went back to them and we said, look, you do have a better device here that mops in a different way. And so our linguist then looked at all the terms around cleaning. And there's sweeping, there's wiping, there's swiping, there's brushing, there's polishing, all these types of things. And we started to look at those things because we wanted it familiar. We didn't want to sell like a pharmaceutical product, right? We wanted it very yeah. approachable. And so we started really playing with this idea of sweeping and we started just corrupting those letters. And really, we got to the point of just swift, right, with two Fs on it. And then looking from a legal standpoint... We actually added, I mean, we had Swife with one F and an E. We had the Swift with two Fs on it. And all of a sudden, in a telephone conversation with one of the clients, we sort of moved it to a more active thing, Swiffer. And at that point, it was just very clear to me and, by the way, to a couple of the clients on the phone, that that's it. And then it cleared legally quite easy because of the ER ending there. And that's the story of Swiffer. What a great story. And when you say it cleared legally, is that from the trademark perspective? Correct. Yeah, the trademark. That's one of our bigger hurdles here is with there's so many trademarks out in the marketplace now that every category we work in, just looking at the U.S. trademark database, has an average of about 170,000 registrations. So we still have 26 letters of the alphabet. And so <laughs> it's quite challenging. I'm sure. David, as you know, most of our listeners on Time for Coffee are college students and recent graduates. And I thought they'd be interested to learn that among your staff at Lexicon, you have one woman who graduated in 2017 with a BA in psychology and a minor in Spanish. Mm -hmm. Another team member earned her BA in international relations with a minor in physics, yet another colleague has his law degree, and I love this, prior to that, he spent 18 years as an actor, writer, producer in LA, and still another has his BA in linguistics and English. Now, I may have missed it. I didn't click on every single person, but I didn't see anyone on your staff who had actually studied marketing or branding. Is that the case? And if so, why not? Yeah, well, that's true. That is the case. We look for the development of a very, very well-rounded team here. I think that the basic principles of branding are easy to teach, easy to communicate. It's all about helping someone initiate a conversation between a client and a consumer or a customer, if you will, using, in our case, language. So 
it's not terribly important for us to have someone who has a MBA with a concentration in marketing. Would I certainly talk to someone like that? Of course I would. But I'm looking for well-educated, hardworking, curious people who want to help service clients. And not everybody is, their personality isn't made right for the service business because you do have to be responsive and you, sometimes you have to do things faster than you want, et cetera. But having a marketing degree doesn't give you extra points here. Absolutely. David, I want to flashback just very quickly to when you were in college and you went to UCLA. You graduated with a degree in political science. Did you know what you were going to do when you graduated? No, I did not have the slightest idea. I was toying with going to law school. I was very interested in politics, and that's really what led me to I'd had an internship in Washington, D.C. in my classic between your junior and senior year and loved Washington, loved my job, loved Washington, loved my roommates. It was just a, one of these great classic college summers. And so I decided just to go back and pursue a career, a political career. And I enrolled at George Washington or GW University in international affairs. To get your graduate degree. Correct. Okay. So how did you pivot from international affairs into the brand naming business. And in particular, I think you started at Synectics. Let me explain what that's all about. So in Washington, D.C., I worked up on the Hill as a staff legislative assistant for the Senate Commerce Committee. And from there, I did some freelance speech writing at UCLA. I was on the UCLA Bruin newspaper, the Daily Bruin, for a little while. So I had a little bit of a writing background. I don't think I was terribly great at it, but I decided to get better by doing some freelance writing and speech writing. I then got a job on a political campaign, literally as press secretary. Cool. The governor of Missouri was running for the U.S. Senate, and I decided it would be just a great opportunity. Never been to Missouri got in my beat up old VW and drove out there. And during that approximately a one year period, campaigns are always tight for finance. And so I became involved in advertising and actually helping to write the advertisements for the campaign. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the photography shoots, picking out the topography for the ad, those kinds of things. And I thought, you know what, this could be an interesting, I guess I wasn't using the word career, just an interesting job my next step. And so campaign ended and I left the campaign. The governor actually won the primary race, but the more I got to know the governor working closely with him, the less I liked. So I left after the primary, went back to, from California and decided to start applying to advertising firms, got a job with an advertising firm, worked there for almost six years and saw, basically had this very simple insight that the world was changing globalization was happening, we were going to be more interconnected, and that names had to work more broadly and more effectively than ever before. And I honestly said, I'm going to try this. I think there's a service here that if I can put the right people together, we'll do well. And here I am 30 years later. There you go. Wow. I love how accidental all of this is and how random these kinds of experiences are that end up influencing big chunks of your life. 
David, could you share a time in your professional life in which you struggled? Maybe you hit a wall, you may have been in over your head or dropped the ball on a big project, whatever the case may be. What happened and how did you persevere? The easiest cases that come to mind are really financial ones. You start a company, I started Lexicon, it was just me, so overhead wasn't that much. But as you grow and you take on overhead, you do have these financial challenges. In 2001 and then flowing into 2002, when the dot-com boom ended, we were probably 70% of our business was in the Silicon Valley. And so I had to really go to the bank, get loans. I'm very proud of the fact I've never laid off a single person here at Lexicon over all these years. It was challenging to kind of rebuild, to diversify. Well, then it happened again in 2008, right? Six years later. Not that we had real estate clients at all. It was just that I think most of our clients just got very scared about the meltdown and budgets were cut. Projects were either delayed or simply cut. So once again, going to the bank, getting loans, keeping everybody employed. Those are tougher times, but they actually, I've learned that those times make you a much better leader manager. Why? Because you learn, I think, one, to be more grateful for the times that things are easier, that the money is flowing, that you don't have to worry about that. But it also requires you to be a better manager, to really think about things, to make sure you're making the right decisions that won't affect you or your employees. That makes sense. David, before we get to the final question, I would love to get your thoughts on, and this is a standard time for coffee question, if you could go back to UCLA and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Very interesting question. I think that if I had it all to do again, had I been accepted at UCLA's Anderson School of Business, I probably just would have stayed at UCLA and gotten a business degree then and there. That's what I might consider. But other than that, I can't say a lot of things immediately come to me. I feel very fortunate, very grateful that I managed to connect different dots along the way to get different educational experiences and meet different people. And I have to say, with great gratitude, I don't really think I would have changed a lot. Wonderful. So here is the question just for you, David, your professional feedback on the name of my company, the name of this podcast, and be brutally honest. (laughs) Okay. I promise to be brutally honest because it's going to be easy because this is not a bad name. You're appealing to a younger audience here. You want an approachable name, right? You don't want this to be too serious. People want to come and they want to learn. Gimlet, the same way, right, in terms of a podcast. So Time for Coffee does that. You take a common expression and you put it into sort of the brand name format here. And I think it makes it quite approachable. Is it an ideal name given what you do here? Because you're not just offering someone a break, you're offering someone information and insights. And so I think you cover this notion of this informal, approachable experience. But where it sort of falls is I am not imagining, so I'm not saying coffee and insights. I don't want to 
be descriptive, right? Right. But I want people to imagine that if I go to this place, I'm actually going to be better off. I'm not just going to have a little break, but I'm going to really learn something. It's a valuable time. Yeah. So it's really strong on one side, weak on another. But all in all, it's probably a B to B plus name. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. I feel so much better. And the truth is, I have to be scrappy like you when you started Lexicon. It's just me and some wonderful unpaid interns who work with me every semester. But I had to be scrappy. So one day, David, if I ever start monetizing, which I certainly hope to do, I hope that I can come to Lexicon as a client and maybe get your professional advice and counsel to take me to the next level. We'd love to help you out. (laughs) So David, if listeners want to connect with you or your colleagues at Lexicon, where can they find you? Just go to our website, which is lexiconbranding.com. There'll be a contact page. Fill that out and someone will certainly respond to you, usually in 24 hours. We're very good about that. Fantastic. David, thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community, I really mean it when I say this whole profession is so fascinating to me. I think if I wasn't doing what I'm doing right now, I would be interested in getting into the brand naming business. But I have a job right now, and I am also a full-time stay-at-home mom, so that might make it tough. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been a great pleasure for me, and wish you the best of luck, and look forward to hearing this all on your show. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.